coming toward the end of our Bibles, just two books left. Let me ask you a question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Have you ever thought of the Christian life as a bed of roses? I've put, put a picture of a rose here on the screen. Beautiful, isn't it? One of God's great handiworks. It's declaring His glory every time you look at a rose. But have you ever thought that amongst the roses there are thorns? So if you think of the Christian life as a bed of roses, it is if you include the thorns. Have you ever tried to work amongst roses? Very prickly things. Uh, very, you know, the, the, the rose itself is a beautiful thing. But if you start sticking your arm in there, you can get poked, and that hurts, doesn't it? It hurts a lot. Well, being a Christian is kind of like the bed of roses in the sense that it's a wonderful thing, but it's also a difficult thing. You get picked. You get poked. It, it, and, and life can hurt at times, can it? The reality is life is difficult even for Christians. It's sad there is a, a, a brand of Christianity out there that says, come to Christ and life's going to be great. You know? You're never going to have any problems again. You're going to be wealthy and you're going to have good health and you're going to prosper. And if you're not, it's all your fault. It's your lack of faith that's the problem. Well, that's just not reality. Jesus himself never promised us that. In fact, Jesus promised tribulation even for believers. Well, it, it, is, it is true. According to the Bible and according to Jesus, life is difficult even for Christians. And since that's true, some people might ask, well, why go to all the trouble? Why, why put my faith in Jesus Christ? Why live this Christian life if there is going to be trouble? Why not you know, just spend my Sundays staying at home? Why not spend my Sundays going to the beach if... You know, if I come to Christ and I'm still going to have trouble anyway, why bother? Why go to all the trouble? And some would say, well, after all, I mean, really, I can believe in God in, in the privacy of my own mind. I don't need to go to some organization or, or uh, some organized Christianity. I don't, I don't need that stuff. I can just believe in God and worship God in the privacy of my own mind. Why go to all the trouble of church? Why, you know, I, I, after all, I don't need organized Christianity. Well, there's two basic answers for why you might go to all the trouble. Two basic answers, and this is about as simple as I can get. You go to the trouble of organized Christianity or church, whatever you want to call it. Either you're going to do it for God or you're going to do it for yourself. I hope you'd primarily do it for God, but I hope you also do it for yourself. And I want you to listen to John's third letter. This is the Apostle John. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He calls himself again the Elder. He's writing to this man named Gaius. He's mentioned here in the first verse. And I want you to see what John's third letter says. And we're going to see a good example, we're going to see a bad example. It's, it's predominantly about two guys, Gaius 
and Diotrephes. One's a good example, one's a very bad example, and we're going to see what the Holy Spirit has to say about these men. So let's look at 3 John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. We will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. So John's third general letter presents us with two patterns for life in the church. There's two patterns for life in the church. This this letter is predominantly about these two guys and the contrast between these two guys. We We have a life that takes trouble for God, and then there's a life that makes trouble for God. All right? And so let's see how this pattern is lived out in the life of these two men. First of all, we'll look at Gaius, and then we'll look at Diotrephes. So first of all, let's see how Gaius took trouble for God. The Bible says in verse 1, we see, first of all, the Holy Spirit mentions that he was loved. Gaius was loved. The elder, John, the apostle John here, as he writes to Gaius, Mentions He calls him beloved, and then he mentions whom I love in truth. John loved Gaius, notice, in truth. That means he loves him with a love that is grounded in the truth. The foundation is truth itself, and John loves Gaius in the way that God loves us in Christ. And this points us, by the way, to a great reality, that truth is and affection go together. Truth and affection go together. A lot of people think they're mutually exclusive. 
And somehow, if you're a truth guy, that you can't be a love guy at the same time. And some people say, if you're a love person, there's, there's no way you can be a, a, a truth person. Well, as we've seen in John's letters, the two go together. Truth and love, or truth and affection, go together. The second thing we learn about Gaius is he was spiritually prospering. He was spiritually prospering. It's interesting that John would say in verse 2, I pray that all may go well with you and you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. That's an interesting statement. I'm kind of blown away by that statement that John's praying that Gaius's physical health would actually keep up with his spiritual health. We often talk about our physical health. We want that to be good, of course. And I hope you can say, just as the Apostle John is saying here, how did Gaius take trouble for God, though? How did he take trouble for God? Well, he was spiritually prospering, and, and whenever you're <laughs> spiritually prospering for God, it, it seems that trouble is inevitably going to follow. But we see in verses 3 and 4 here, how he took trouble for God, because it says that he walked in the truth. The idea of walk, by the way, means he lived it. It was, it was his normal conduct of life. Truth. Gaius lived according to the truth. It means he was faithfully following the doctrine that he had been taught. He was faithfully following good, sound biblical theology. And here's one point needs to be made. It's not enough to believe the truth. You also have to live the truth. In other words, this guy practiced what he preached. We also see he walked according to love. Again, we see how love and truth walk hand in hand. They can be working together. In verse 5, this, the Bible says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing to do in all your efforts for these brothers, these strangers as they are. Guys took trouble for God by living in love. He lived out his faith, and we can see how he lived out his faith here. He loved these strangers who visited the church. These strangers, by the way, were sent by the Apostle John. These were teachers of God's Word. John had sent them with his own authority, and, 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 and Gaius took trouble for God by loving these other people. And there's three things to note about his love. First of all, let's think about who did Gaius love here? Who did Gaius love? Well, verse 5 says he loved strangers. So that sounds like he didn't know these people. You say, why did he love these strangers? Well, these strangers were also brothers, as they're called here. And by brothers, that doesn't mean a a blood brother relationship. This is a spiritual brother relationship. In other words, these men were Christians. And that's all it took to convince Gaius to treat these strangers with love. He didn't need to know them. He just needed to know they were Christians. Well, have you ever experienced a stranger becoming a brother or sister to you? You ever experienced that? Never met this person your entire life, and there's this instant connection with that individual, even though they're a stranger? Why is there that instant connection? 
It's because you both have the same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells with you, indwells them, and that's why there's that instant connection. And if you've been adopted by God, then you have a massive family throughout the world. As Revelation says, before the throne of God, there's going to be people from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping God there at His throne. So you have a massive family of millions of brothers and sisters. It's an amazing family. In God's family, there are people from, well, all over the place. Different ethnicities, different ages, different backgrounds. And God has, He said, He's made us one in Christ. But despite those differences, we're all one in Christ. We have the same Father because we've been adopted by God the Father. So there's a sisterhood and there's a brotherhood that's not physical, but spiritual. And Gaius understood that truth, which is why he welcomes these strangers as brothers. Well, that's who Gaius loved. Let's think about, well, then why did Gaius love? He loved his fellow Christians here, it says, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look at verse 7, it mentions the name. Of course, that name is the name of Jesus Christ. He welcomed them because of Jesus. Jesus, If Jesus is your brother, then why not welcome Jesus' brothers and sisters? And so like guys, that needs to be our motive. What we do is for the name. What we do is for the sake of Jesus Christ, for His cause, for His glory. And so we must be moved by the gospel for Christ's sake. Number three question we need to answer here is, well, how did Gaius love? This is not just some airy-fairy, you know, stuff out there somewhere, but there's, there's a practicality here. He loved them practically. If you look at verses 6 to 8, you see his hospitality being worked out. Look at verse 6, because it says, "...who testified to your love before the church. You'll do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God." For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So John encouraged Gaius to show hospitality. This love's very practical here. You need to understand something about the first century. Very different from our modern day. So if if you can just transport yourself back to the first century. This will help you to get into to Gaius's sandals here for a moment. See, it was traditional for a host to escort, to, uh, to, to go with the guest on the first part of their journey. So if you had a guest, a visitor staying with you, which was very common, then, then you would help them. See, you have to understand there were no road maps you know, they didn't have the internet. You know, they, they couldn't get on their smartphone and look at Google Maps or, you know, there, there, there was no electronic navigator with that obnoxious voice telling you where to go, you know, in 500 meters, turn right. And then when you go past your turn, the, the obnoxious voice, usually a female voice, isn't on those, those nav mans. 
uh, you, you idiot, turn around, you missed, no, it doesn't say that. You missed your turn, so turn here, you know, it helps correct you every step of the way, right? It, they didn't have that sort of stuff. There, there was no road signs, no internet, no road maps. And so you wanted to make sure your guests knew the way. And by the way, you also need to understand there's no fancy hotels and motels. You know, they didn't have that sort of thing like we have today. And so you had to show hospitality or literally people could die. It wasn't very hospitable unless you were a Christian. Most importantly, we need to understand that showing hospitality allowed people to come from far and wide to to either teach or to hear the Word of God. There wasn't a church on every corner, right? Not everybody had a, a Bible to read either, and so people who, who were able to teach was, was a very special thing during that day and age. And so that's how they, they practically showed love for these, these traveling preachers. They would put them up in their homes, and and when it was time for them to leave, they would, you know, they might give them some money. They would send them on their way with money, and they would help escort them to where they needed to go, so that they were safe and looked after. Well, let me ask you this: That's what they did, but what about you? Are are you living in love? <clears throat> are you living in love? And, and to answer that question. You need to answer some other questions then, don't you? Let me ask you this. Is there anyone you love purely for the sake of the gospel? Is there anybody you love just for the sake of the name? Nothing you're going to get out of it. It's, It's simply for Jesus Christ. In the church, we do not have the luxury of loving people merely because they're attractive to us. That is the wrong motive in what we do. Nor do we have the luxury of avoiding people who are not attractive to us or who are just, you know, the the awkward or the difficult person whom you just, for whatever reason, you have a hard time connecting with. See, in a Christian church, this is the way it should be. In a Christian church, you and I volunteer to take one another's rubbish. And by that, I don't mean literal rubbish that you, you put out at the footpath or your sidewalk, whatever you want to call it. No, no, what we're, here's the reality. God has taken our rubbish. God took our rubbish in Jesus Christ, particularly our, our sin and all the pathologies that go with that. But the Bible says God has loved us even though we were not attractive to him in our sin. Romans 5, 8 says God loved us in Christ. Why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't come to die for you because he found you attractive. You were awkward. You were difficult. You're the prickly person. And Christ died for you. So that's what we should do for one another in the church. We, we love one another even though we find each other awkward and difficult and unattractive. We must love everybody, even the undesirable. Even somebody who's not at that same social standing or the same age as us. Sometimes it's difficult for, for different generations to go and talk to a different generation. Right? If you're, if you're a, 
you know, if you're a baby boomer, it might be difficult for you to go and talk to a Generation Yer or the Generation Xer to go and talk to, you know, someone who's, you know, as far as they're concerned, is a dinosaur, right? I say that affectionately, right? It's very difficult. I see that dynamic even in <clears throat> the, the workplace. That's, that's normal. But it shouldn't be that way amongst Christians, though. Shouldn't be that way. So let me ask you, why do you love people? Do you love people? And if you do, why? Well, if you love Christ, then guess what? You're going to love Christ's servants. It goes together. And Christ gives you that, that love. So how do you love other Christians then? Well, in verse 8, John writes to Gaius here, and he writes that Gaius ought to show hospitality to all the saints. Now, what is true for Gaius is, of course, true for us to today. This, this hasn't changed. In fact, throughout the Bible, you'll find the hospitality commands. And if you've never seen these before, let me just show them to you quickly. Romans 12, verse 13, talks about this matter of hospitality. It says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, 2 also mentions it. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. 1 Peter 4, verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I won't ask how many of you can do the last part. (laughs) You might be able to do the first part, but can you actually have a stranger into your home and feed them and and give them lodging and accommodation and, you know, let them use your shower and your, your towels and sit at your table and sleep in your bed and all that sort of good stuff and do it without grumbling? That's the difficult part, isn't it? Do it without grumbling. Well, if you're struggling with that, in John's letter here, I think he gives us a couple compelling reasons why we should practice hospitality, and in particular why we should practice hospitality to God's workers, helping to support God's workers. Right? So, for example, we, uh, we, we occasionally will have God's workers come to our church. For example, you know, the Red Shaws. Or we might have a missionary come through, or another pastor, or something like that. If God's worker comes here, do you show hospitality? And if you do, what are the right reasons for doing that? Well, let's talk about what John mentions here. First, he says we should practice hospitality for the sake of the name. And, of course, that name is Jesus Christ. In other words, we do it because we love Jesus Christ. That's the the trump card, if you will, here. Everything we do should be for his sake, because we love God. Number two, John notes that the Christian brothers are receiving no help from the unbelievers. So in verse 7, when he mentions the Gentiles here, he's referring to unbelievers. These people do not know Jesus Christ. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's your responsibility and your privilege, by the way, to support God's servants. It's your responsibility. It's not an unbeliever's responsibility. It's yours. And I'll remind you, it's not only a responsibility, it's a privilege. You get to share in their work. And that's the third point. It's a privilege to practice hospitality toward God's servants because, as verse 8 says, 
it signifies our working together for the truth of the gospel, for the cause of Christ. There's this, there's this connection here. And so when you support one of God's workers, or a missionary or pastor or whoever it might be, you're actually joining together in that work of the gospel. You get to share in the rewards and all the everything that gets to go with that. What a that's awesome if you think about that. As you you put money in the offering box or you you do a, a one of those uh, those golden handshakes where sometimes you try to hide money in your hand and give them a handshake. You ever done that? <clears throat> I've had people do that to me. That's <clears throat> It's a lot of fun. It's fun to receive and it's fun to give. Jesus said it's more blessed to give, though. If you've never done that, do it sometime. Put a $50 note in your hand and say, here, brother. I don't know what your needs are, but uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's laid it upon my heart to, to help you out. I want to I share with you in the truth. That's what John's talking about here. So those are a few compelling reasons why we should practice hospitality. But the next question you might ask is, well, then how can I practice hospitality? How can we practice hospitality? Well, just some practical suggestions. Uh, number one, you can open your home. Open up your home. You've probably heard that phrase that a man's home is his castle. man's home is his castle. Well, guess what? When it comes for Christians, that's actually an ungodly way to think about it. That is an ungodly way for us to think about the homes that God has given to us. Because your house doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And when God sends you one of his workers your way, the last thing you should be doing is pull up the drawbridge, throw the alligators in the moat, and call the archers out on the top of the ramparts to shoot at God's workers who are standing there saying, would you help me? Yeah, figuratively speaking, right? That's what they used to do in castles, right? So I'm just kind of using that analogy. right? That's, that's not what we want to do. We want to put the drawbridge down, take the alligators out of the moat, call the archers off and say, hey, come on in. Man's home should not be his castle. Another thing you need to keep in mind is we should give financially to the work of the church. You say, why? Because God's work can then grow when we are supporting one of his institutions. The third thing to keep in mind is we should involve ourselves any way we can in the work of the gospel. We ought to be looking for opportunities to be involved in God's work, in, in the cause of Christ. It's a privilege to be involved in helping those who are spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. You ought to be Writing, for example, the Red Shaw and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? Do you have any needs? Call a missionary up and say, do you have any needs? What, what can I do? How can I pray for you? By the way, look at uh, verse 6. There's an interesting phrase there that might help you understand this point. That John's exhorting Gaius there in verse 6 to send the workers on their way. Notice it says, in a manner worthy of God. Wow, that's, that's not just sending them on their way. Notice there's the, it's in a manner worthy of God. In other words, we're not to be tight-fisted. We don't want to be a penny pincher. We don't want to be stingy. Or at this time of year, you might remember Charles Dickens' 
figure in his book. You don't want to be a Scrooge. Don't be a Scrooge. Be generous. Gaius' life of loving hospitality demonstrated his belief in the truth. And so the question is, does yours, does mine? Well, what you don't want to be like is the next guy that John mentions here, Diotrephes. Because this is kind of like the opposite of Gaius. Instead of taking trouble for God, we see Diotrephes actually made trouble for God. And this little letter presents another pattern here for how to live. And of course, I hope you want to follow Gaius's pattern, not Diotrephes, because this is a less wholesome way to live. Unfortunately, though, it's a very common way for people to live. So look what John writes about him in verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. The Apostle John's very clear here, isn't he? I hope to you. Diotrephes' example here is not a good example to follow. This is one to shun. You say, why? Well, notice the first thing he mentions about Diotrephes in verse 10 is he talked wicked nonsense. He talked wicked nonsense. Now, some people think Diotrephes was a heretic. I don't think he was a heretic, like John mentions in his other books. But he, he certainly talked wicked nonsense. In other words, he was slanderous. He was evil in his talk. His words did not build up people. They actually tore down people. The Bible says we should always speak carefully and speak gently with our words and build up people. The verse that I was exhorted to memorize when I was in Christian university... <clears throat> was Ephesians 4.29. Now, I still struggle with this. Just because you memorize a verse doesn't mean you're immediately going to be perfect. (laughs) I'm certainly not. But I had, and still have, in some sense, this issues of tearing people down. Hopefully I've improved. And so I was exhorted to memorize this verse and to meditate upon it and let the Word of God just wash over me. And here's what it says. It says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's not an option. Your words are to minister grace to the people who hear your words. In other words, build them up, help them, edify them, encourage them, exhort them. Don't trash them, rubbish them, tear them down, destroy them with your tongue. Well, he talked wicked nonsense, but verse 9 says he also lived selfishly. This is why he made a lot of trouble for God, because he was very selfish, according to verse 9. In fact, my ESV says he liked to put himself first. Who is he worshiping? Right? There's always two choices on the shelf. You either please God or please yourself. Who did Diotrephes want to please? Himself. He was selfish. 
He did only what pleased himself. Now, perhaps John had written to the church, commending some missionaries that he was sending. That's the impression you get. Sadly, what does Diotrephes do with these men who the Apostle John sent to the church? Well, he rejected, number one, the Apostle's authority. And he said no to these men who had come. And he did this by refusing to welcome these Christian brothers. He did not show hospitality. And you see, Diotrephes here is not hospitable. (laughs) He's the exact opposite of Gaius. He is hostile to anybody who works for God. It appears like he doesn't even like them. He refused to welcome these true teachers of God's Word. And you say, well, man, that's bad. Well, guess what? It gets even worse. It gets even worse. Because the Bible says, not only did he do that, he even stopped those who welcomed God's workers. So imagine you... You wanting to have a missionary into your home, and Diotrephes finds out, you dare have a missionary into your home? You dare have a pastor who teaches God's word into your home? Well, Diotrephes would come and, and he would exclude you from the church. He exercised illegitimate church discipline because you dare have a missionary in your house. You gave them lodging and food. You helped them on their way. Oh, So what's Diotrephes' problem here? Well, verse 9 says he likes to put himself first. He makes trouble for God by living for himself first. What did God say? What did Jesus say? Who's supposed to come first? We're supposed to love God first, aren't we? Not ourselves. Diotrephes wanted to make sure that things went his way. Maybe the guy was a little power-hungry, Maybe the guy enjoyed empire building for himself. Certainly he he had ungodly ambition. Certainly he was selfish. And certainly it says here he loved himself first. God was somewhere else down the line. How did John respond? Well, if you look at verse 10, your Bible says we're all going to give account. That's what the Bible says. We're all going to give account. Because notice what verse 10 says, So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. He's going to be held accountable for what he's doing before the church. Certainly, ultimately, before God, he'll be held accountable. The Bible says we all day, one day, we'll all stand before God. We will be held accountable. But in the meantime, he's given church leaders responsibility for exercising authority. That's what God says. And so this letter is bringing us to an important issue. What is the basic problem? What's the basic problem? It's self-centeredness, pride. What's the solution? Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's a solution for all of our sin problems, isn't it? Did you notice what the Bible says about Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 5 here? It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So you have two models. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate model that you need to follow. 
But in this particular letter here, we have two models, two different paths that you and I can take. Which one are you going to follow? And by the way, these two paths smell very differently. They look very differently, don't they? They lead to two different destinations. And John's laying out the choice here for us in verse 11. And in case you missed it, look here. here here's his conclusion. He says in verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. So John's laying the choice out. Scripture tells us to imitate God. Imitate God. That's your, your primary person and thing you must imitate. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. But did you know that we should also imitate some Christians? Notice I said some, not all of them, because not all of them are good examples. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 says, Be imitators of me. That's Paul speaking. Apostle Paul, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So what's the condition for following some Christian? Are they following Christ? That's the condition. As they follow Christ, then you can follow them. So they should be looking at Christ, doing what, what he wants them to do, and then you can just, ultimately, you're following Christ in the process. So let me offer a final word of warning here as we close this little letter. You need to choose carefully whose example you follow. You're going to follow somebody's example. All of you are looking at people, and you're going to be influenced by people. Whether you recognize it or not, you are influenced by people. So whose example are you following, Gaius's or Diotrephes? You need to choose carefully. And let me give you a final word of encouragement. There are Diotrephes in the church, and by the way, there's always going to be Diotrephes in the church. In other words, these kind of people exist in God's church. And it's been so since the beginning, ever since the first churches. But there's the good news is this. There's also Gaiuses in the church. There's these, these people who are hospitable, people who, who, are, who marry together truth and love, truth and affection, and they live it out in their life. And so praise God, because there are these kind of people who leave lasting inspiring examples for us. And we can follow those examples. And we can be encouraged by them. We can be built up by them. So again, my friend, I ask you this. Whose example are you following? Do you understand that truth and love should be worked out in your life together? And are you living it, truth and love? Are you following the Gaius's of this world? Are you following God? Are you following Christ? Are you imitating God? If not, it, my friend, guess what? Jesus came some 2,000 years ago and lived the perfect life for you, even though you can't do it. He's already lived your life for you. So my friend, you, you must put your faith and your trust in Him, not just only for salvation. Of course we must put our faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, but your whole life is His. and He's lived that life for you. By God's grace, you can do it through Him, through the power of the Holy Spirit. May God enable us 
to be imitators of him. Let's pray.